Sweet. Okay. Luke chapter 9, are you there? We're going to pick up where we left off. So let's uh, pray this morning as we get into God's word. Uh, Lord, we just come before you. Um, I thank you that your word tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus, we love your word because the written word leads us to you, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that our hearts, that our minds, that our lives would be led to you as we just spend some time in your word this morning. So Lord, lead us, speak to us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, sweet. So we're picking up where we left off in Luke. We're going to start in verse 18. And uh, last week we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000. And I mentioned this, and I'll mention it again if you weren't here with us. This marks the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, okay? So the ministry of Jesus was just three years long. It's really a short time. And out of that three years, he spent two and a half years in the region of the Galilee, in the community where he had made his home in Capernaum and in that general area, preaching the gospel, going around healing people, casting out demons. But it's all happened up in the north in Galilee. He's been up there for two and a half years. And so Luke, from here on in, in this gospel account, focuses on the last six months of Jesus' ministry. So it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about that as maybe you're reading ahead or you're familiar with the gospel of Luke, that everything that you're reading is crammed into a six-month period of time. And Jesus is about to turn his face and set his focus on Jerusalem and the journey towards Jerusalem and the cross, his death. So let's check this out. Verse 18, it says this. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old have risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So, you know, Jesus hanging out with the boys, spending some time in prayer, and coming out of the place of prayer, he asked them this question, who do the people say that I am? And we read this, all the names coming around, floating around there, you know, well, you're a reincarnation of uh, John the Baptist, you're Elijah who's come back, whatever they think. But the point was to ask the next question, Jesus turned and asked them, well, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's a, big question. That's a big question, isn't it? Like, I mean, an important one. And what's interesting is that Jesus had waited two and a half years to ever ask the disciples this question. They'd spent two and a half years with him, uh, watching everything that he had done, and he had never asked them this question. He was asking them this question, and if they would get it right, He's going to turn his face and he's going to set his face towards Jerusalem and begin to make his way to the cross. It's a great question. Who do you say that I am? See, it's impossible to get that question about Jesus wrong and to be right with God because there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So if you get Jesus wrong, you're going to have a wrong relationship with God. He had given these men every Clue possible. Clue after clue after clue. He'd preached to them the kingdom of God. They had watched him deal with the crowds. They had seen him drive out demons. They had heard him preach, preach the kingdom, feed the 5,000, as we read last week, calm the, calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee with a word. And so Peter pipes up and he answers, you are the Christ of God. 
What a great answer. He's saying this, man, Jesus, we've come to recognize who you are. You've lived before, but not here on earth. You've lived in heaven. I mean, you exist for eternity past and you will exist in the future. You are the son of the living God, the preexistent one who existed before you ever came to earth. What a great explanation. He's like, this is the only answer to explain everything that we, can, we have seen you do. As we have watched you for two and a half years, we are convinced, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the Christ of God. It's amazing that Jesus had prayed all night before choosing the disciples, and he prayed before asking them this question about their personal confession of faith. See, the crowd, Jesus was saying, can have opinions, but you're my disciples. Opinions, you can't have opinions. You have to have confessions. You have to have convictions about the deity and the person of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 21 tells us that he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, isn't this crazy? You're like, what? Two and a half years to arrive at this conclusion, and they're told, Okay, now keep that to yourselves. But it's like, what? You're, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've waited for. You know, the disciples had taken all this time to develop their conviction, to come to this place of confession of faith. And then Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Don't spread this truth openly. And we know this. I mean, this is the blessing of hindsight for us as followers of Christ. The time was going to come when he would tell them, tell everyone openly. Go into all the world and preach this message. But at this point, these 12 men did not have a, a clear picture of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, what it meant for him to be the Christ, what the kingdom of God was all about. They did not understand his Messiahship. And the fact that Jesus is the Christ cannot be divorced from these truths, his death and his resurrection. And they didn't understand that he was going to die. They didn't understand that he was going to suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders, that he was going to go to the cross to redeem men from their sins, and that he was going to die and be buried and rise from the dead three days later. He was going to teach them these things. He was going to tell them these things, and they were going to see them unfold. But they were not going to truly grasp these realities and these truths until he had been raised from the dead. Even at the tomb, those who went to the tomb to anoint his body, the angel said to them, don't you remember? He told you these things were going to happen. So if the disciples at this point were to go out and give clear teaching that Jesus was the Messiah, then you know it would have caused many problems amongst the Jewish people. It would have brought misunderstandings about the nature of the kingdom and the reality of the work of the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus said, keep it quiet, boys, because people don't yet understand that I've come to ransom them from their sin. So let's check this out. Verse 22, it says this. He said to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's like Jesus had never taught this to the 12 yet. 
They didn't know about this. They didn't know the suffering that was to come. They didn't understand it all. And he said, guys, there are things that are yet to happen before I send you out to announce the kingdom of God and to go into all the world. You need to know some things. And so this is the first time that Jesus mentions his death and resurrection to them. And it's not going to be the last time. In the last six months of his ministry with them, he's going to tell them many times about these things. In Matthew's gospel, this is where Matthew pipes up and he says, you know, no way, Jesus, you're not, you're not going to die. And Jesus had to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. And so Jesus is going to tell them time and again what is going to happen in Jerusalem, but they just can't quite grasp the reality of it. And then what's interesting is this, is that next Jesus tells them something difficult. He says, I'm telling you what's going to happen to me. Now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'll be raised from the dead. But now let me tell you what is going to happen to you. Let's check this out. Verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains, gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Man, this is an important teaching about Jesus, isn't it? From Jesus for you and I. This is for anyone who wants to, anyone who would count themselves a follower of Christ. And the first thing Jesus says is, if you're going to follow me, it's going to mean a cross for you. It's going to mean that you are going to die. You are going to have to take up your cross every day and you're going to have to deny yourself and you're going to have to live as if you were dead to follow me. I was thinking about that. It's like, this is a tough passage, isn't it? It's like, I want to say this. It's like tough to be a disciple of Jesus. It's tough to be a follower of Christ. If you're looking for easy street, I mean, I got to tell you this, following Jesus is not that. It is not. Please don't get any misunderstanding about what it means to follow Jesus. You know, it's like not the country song where you get your dog back and your truck back and your wife back and all these things back. Following Jesus is a tough road. And Jesus says, you're going to have to learn to die to yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. It's like being crucified. Think about this. He said, it's like being crucified every day to follow me. Then he said to them, see, if you want to save your life, if you want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake, you will save it. I mean, for me, when I read this, to me, this is the comfort of this whole teaching. You know, it's like that if you want to follow Jesus, yes, you're going to learn to die every day, but in that you gain something that you'd never have otherwise. He said, life. You'll gain life. 
you'll learn to live. And it almost sounds like a contradiction, but there is a, a host of believers in heaven, you know, generations of people who today, if we could hear their testimony, martyrs who died for their faith, if we could hear their voices, they would testify to this truth. If you will lose your life for Jesus, you will find life. And it's somewhat of a scary thing to think, man, lose my life. But Jesus said, oh, there's so much more to gain if you will lose your life in following me. He said to them, what good is it if you gain this whole world and lose or forfeit yourself? Well, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? It's like, okay, I get that. That makes sense. And then he told them, if anyone is embarrassed of me or ashamed of my words in this world when I come back, I will be ashamed of him. I'm like, to me, that's scary too. I mean, have you ever been ashamed of Christ? When you're kind of embarrassed to admit that you're a Christian, to say that you belong to Jesus and that you believe he's alive? Jesus said, that's got to be worked out of your life. And then he said to them, I tell you the truth, some standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Look with me at verse 27. But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, Luke doesn't tell us about this, but the other gospels do fill in the gaps for us that this situation actually happened all the way up in the north of Israel. If we had you know, a map in front of us, or if you had a map in the back of your Bible, if you would look at it and you would look all the way as far north as you can on the map of Israel, you would discover that this happened at a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's like when we've been to Israel, it's, I think it's one of my favorite places to visit. And Caesarea Philippi is, is set at the, mount of, uh, at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 10,000 feet. Isn't that crazy? 10,000 feet and you can ski there. Did you know that? You could ski in Israel. And that's what they do on Mount Hermon. And so Jesus led the 12 to this place at the foot of uh, the mountain. It was a, a, a place of pagan worship, a place that was actually considered the gates of hell. That's why Jesus told them, even the gates of hell will not prevail against a church. That's in Matthew chapter 16. It's part of, not part of what Luke tells us about, but this is the same situation. Now, verse 28, it says this. Now, about eight days after saying these things, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. Now, I think this is Mount Hermon. This is where they were, all the way up in the north, 10,000 feet up. That's a bit of a hike. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So this is a, this is a bit of a hike, okay? You know, what, what's Elphinstone? Does somebody know? I didn't even, it's like, is it 3,000 feet or something? 3,500? 10,000 feet. These guys head up there. That'll make you tired. That's a bit of a hike, don't you think? Remember that uh, these guys live below sea level. I mean, I, I, I was... When we were in Egypt, I went up 7,000 feet, and I was like struggling for my breath as a 40-year-old, and I'm thinking, this is crazy, but I'm a sea-level dweller. These guys live below sea level, okay, in Galilee, and they're going up 10,000 feet with Jesus up the mountain, and they were young men, but, you know, they were tired. We're actually going to read this, that they fell asleep when they got up there. But the first thing that they saw was like, this heavenly light, which must have been shocking because it wasn't that the clouds opened up and shone down upon 
Jesus, it was that light began to emanate right out of his very person, out of his body. What an awesome sight. We read in different accounts that his, that his face changed, that his clothes changed. Mark's gospel says that his clothes were, were brighter and whiter than you could ever accomplish with any scrubbing or any soap. It was just like amazing. The, the secret to this light was that it was not shining on him, but it was emanating from him. Jesus himself became white as lightning. It's like hard to picture that, isn't it? He became dazzling, Luke says, blazing light. His body shone right through his clothes. It's like, have you ever played with a flashlight and, you know, put it under your shirt or something like that? It's like, that's what was going on with Jesus. Are you, you ever seen that guy walking down the street? He's got his light on his cell phone in his back pocket. It's on. Okay. It's like shining out. And this is Jesus. Well, that's what it was like, except he himself was the source of light, the light of the world. It's like a flashlight going through him, like lightning. And two men appeared with him, Moses and Elijah, two witnesses. Moses representing the law, the one who gave the law to the people of Israel. Elijah representing all of the prophets. With these two men, there were a physical representation of the law and a physical representation of all the words of the prophets. And the, the picture is this. All the law points to Jesus. All the prophets point to Jesus. All of the Old Testament scriptures point right to Jesus. This is the picture of Moses and Elijah. And Moses didn't have to introduce himself, which is kind of interesting. It's not like, uh, hey, Peter, it's me, Moses. It's no, uh, you know, nice to meet you, James. I'm Elijah. That doesn't have to happen here. This is like cool. With instant recognition, like we're going to have in heaven, you guys. Peter, James, and John knew. This is Moses and Elijah. Wow, this is pretty awesome. And they were discussing, Luke tells us, his departure. The original language says, it's way, says it way better. His exodus. They were discussing his exodus. What a great picture of death, actually. An exodus. Have you ever thought about your death that way? That it's an exodus. We know that an exodus evolves, involves leaving one place for a better place. They were discussing that, the, the promised land. The exodus is a hard thing, but what's so cool about the exodus is that it leads to the best thing. Now, verse 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Right? Okay, the altitudes got to them. Those, you know, good time for a nap when you're in prayer with Jesus. That's a good nap time, right? <laughs> we all know that. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Boy, that's, yeah. Do you ever talk and not know what you're saying? Verse 34. As he was... A lot of husbands can relate to Peter. Verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came... And overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So here they were, seeing Jesus in all of his glory, Moses and Elijah. You know, the Jews would every year celebrate the, the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would, you know, build little, little tents, little huts, move outside of their, 
their homes and they would celebrate and look forward to the coming of the future kingdom when the Messiah came. Peter had celebrated this his whole life. And so maybe, you know, I just wonder if Peter, with his suggestion, thought, okay, sweet, the kingdom is here. Moses is here. Elijah is here. The Christ is here. I I can build a booth. Let me build a tabernacle, Jesus, for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And, And one of the pictures that we get here is that Peter wanted to hold on to this moment. I mean, he wanted to enjoy the reality of the kingdom, but he was missing out on what the conversation was between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. They were discussing Jesus' exodus. Before glory, there was suffering. But through the suffering of the cross, Jesus would lead many more on an exodus from slavery to sin and lead them to the glory of the kingdom. And the Father interrupted. The Father in heaven interrupts Peter's suggestion. This cloud of glory comes, and the disciples we read here are afraid. And then this voice comes from heaven. Look at verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter, enough with your silly suggestions and putting your foot in your mouth. Peter, My son Jesus that is standing in front of you is the fulfillment of all of the law. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophets. The law points to him. The prophets point to him. Peter, this is what you need to know, Peter. You need to know this. This experience is truly a wonderful You know, you could memorialize it. You could build your tabernacles and your structures. But you need to understand this truth, actually, Peter. Experiences are wonderful, but the Word of God is better. Experiences are wonderful, but the Word of God is better. See, experiences, they come and go. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. Experiences and your memory of them will fade. Boy, I've had some sweet experiences with the Lord, have you? But man, they get a little bit blurry over the years. I think, wow, you know, what happened that day? What happened in that situation? See, experiences fade. Heaven and earth will fade. But Jesus said the word of God never fades away. Never. And just like Jesus shone from the inside, Jesus wants to change you and I. And he wants to change us from the inside, from the inside and have it work to the outside. This is the work of the gospel, right? The gospel's not outside in. The gospel is inside out, a transformation, a regeneration. And Jesus, we read this, he was praying when this happened. When he was up there on the mountain, the disciples were having a nap. He was in the place of prayer. And it just makes me think this, you know, see, prayer is the key to our transformation, I love this because you get prayer and the word of God up here on the Mount of Transfiguration. The word of God rather than spiritual experience is the key to inside-out transformation. And it happens while you're praying, while you're seeking the Lord. Our transfiguration happens from inner renewal that comes from prayer and the word of God, church. Now verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Wow, it was like these guys did not even understand 
everything that they saw and they experienced, but later they did. Peter wrote about it, 2 Peter. So they begin to make their way down the mountain, and we read in verse 37. We're going to cover lots of ground this morning, so we're going to go right to the end of the chapter. Verse 37, it says this, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. It's quite the picture here because the father has just said, this is my son, my beloved, my chosen, spoke this of Jesus. And now we have another father with his only son, but this boy is demon-possessed. Verse 39, behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him alone. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. This is such an interesting picture because here's Jesus from the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration right down into the valley of human suffering. This is why he came, right? I mean, he was trying to teach this to the disciples. This is why I came. God's before glory, suffering, so that I can set human beings free from suffering. This is why he came. And it's interesting that the disciples, I mean, uh, nine, nine of the 12 were down there in the valley while Jesus was up the mountain. And we find out this, that they were unable to cast out this demonic spirit, which is fascinating because just earlier in this chapter where we were last week, we find out this, that Jesus had sent these men out. Jesus had given these men power to heal disease. Jesus had given these men power to cast out demonic spirits, but they were unable to do so. And it's kind of like, in my mind, you know, as Jesus was up on the mountain, they had kind of let their personal intimacy with the Lord slide. I mean, the gifts and call of God are without repentance, the Word of God tells us. The power was there. The intimacy was gone with the Lord. And this is the key for all of us. See, when we follow Christ, our identity is established <laughs> We're the children of God, the, the ransomed children of God, bought with blood. Our bodies belong to the Lord. That's what the Word of God tells us. The authority that Christ gives to His church, the authority that Jesus gives to His followers, the power that comes from belonging to Christ, I mean, that is set, you guys. It's not like some weird thing that you tap into. You receive that from the Lord Jesus. But our experience of the, the power of the Spirit working through us is dependent upon our intimacy with the Lord. FaceTime. Time in His presence. Prayer. Time in the Word of God. Praying in the Spirit. It's like, the Lord's like, I don't change. I never change. If someone moves ever in this situation between, in our relationship between us and the Father, it's us. And this was the nine disciples down in the valley. Intimacy was lost. The power was there. Look at verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? Bring your son here. He's got a faith problem here. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. 
and all were astonished at the majesty of God. I love that. It's like they're astonished at what God has done. They're recognizing this is God working through Jesus. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So this is incredible. All that were around were just marveling at the majesty of God and what Jesus had done. And Jesus, in the midst of that, well, all the awe is going on, he turns to get the disciples' attention. Guys, let this sink into your ears. I'm about to suffer. This is the lesson now for them. For six months, they've got to come to comprehend that before glory is suffering. They had to learn to follow Jesus. Now, what I love about this is that Luke begins to illustrate this by telling us stories of discipleship. What it means to be a follower and a learner of Jesus. What are the characteristics of those who follow and learn from Jesus, see, to be a disciple is to be just that. It's a a student-teacher relationship where you discipline your life in the patterns of the Lord Jesus. And there are lessons that these men needed to grasp to understand that suffering will happen before glory comes. There are lessons involved with learning to take up your cross daily to follow Jesus. The first one is this. It's going to come up on your screen. Humility. Humility, which has to do with with having a modest view of your own importance. Like to just recognize before, before God who you are and who he is. Check this out, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I'm like, guys, you couldn't cast a demon out of a boy. Okay, but here we go. These are such, this is, we love this about the disciples because they're just like you and I. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. We'll just look at these four lessons on discipleship really quickly this morning. Uh, I was thinking this, see, disciples, those who follow Christ are people who give time to others that would be considered less important to other people. It's like a child, like in that culture, you know, a child symbolized someone who was, in a sense, unimportant. I mean, yes, children are, you know, the future and all that, but in that culture, a child's not earning his way. A child has cost associated with it. I, I remember, you know, people talking about that before I ever had kids. Like, do you know how much it costs to raise a child? Like, ch- children, children come with a cost attached to them. And in that kind of culture, you know, the world did not view children as the great earners or the most valuable people. And Jesus taught this, if you will welcome this child, you are welcoming me. And then he gave them a second lesson. He said that those who are great in the kingdom of God are those who consider themselves 
unimportant. Not that you don't have value like a child, but that you don't have an inflated view of yourself. See, humility is a characteristic of discipleship. The second is this. I called it charity. Charity, not a word that we use a ton in our culture, but it's like, it's the idea of kindness and tolerance of others. This is a characteristic of someone who follows Jesus. Look at verse 49. Jesus answered, or sorry, John answered, Master, we saw one, someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And what's amazing is it's that, you know, it's like John points out another ministry, and it's not that this is like a ineffective ministry. You know, it's not like an apostate ministry. This is someone who is being very effective in ministry in the name of Jesus. They are casting out demons. And John said, we tried to stop them. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, guys, charity, man, kindness, kindness. If someone is doing effective work for the kingdom, they are not your enemy. It makes me think of like denominational wars, right? Like, you know, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. I didn't think Baptists were Christians. Like, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. You wondered though, because they didn't have the spirit. <laughs> no, and, and what, what is he saying here? He's like, look at we don't major on the minors. If someone is effectively serving the kingdom, we don't stop them. If it's a major, that's another story. They're apostate. They're preaching Jesus wrong. They're preaching another Jesus. That's, a, that's another story. But the lesson here for the 12 is this. Have a mind and heart of, of charity towards those who are effectively being about the business of the kingdom. I've, I've had to grow in this over the years. You know, I like, used to be in competition, feel like I was in competition all the time to other churches and other ministries. And now I'm like, praise the Lord, man. Preach Jesus. God bless you. Go, 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 go for the kingdom of God. Amen. Charity and kindness and tolerance and judging others. The next lesson he gives them is this. I called it don't hit back. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? There's the humor of the scriptures. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, this is super fascinating. There's tons, tons and tons of stuff going on in this story. We could spend a lot of time on every one of them this morning. I just wanted to move kind of quickly. But we know this. The Samaritans and the Jews had lots of history. The Samaritans were uh, descendants of the northern kingdom that had been taken into captivity. And they'd come back. They were, you know, a mixed race of Jews and everything else. And they had established their own worship practices and their own tabernacle where they worshipped God. And, and Jews did not consider them, you know, pure worshipers of God. And so they would do this. They would avoid the area of Samaria. We know this. 
I mean, if you spend any time in church over the years, you know this, that a Jew, if they were traveling from the north to go to Jerusalem, they would go way out of the way and travel down the Jordan Valley to circle around, to bypass the area of Samaria and have no interactions with Samaritans. There was lots of history between Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus, we read here, had set his face towards Jerusalem. He's not looking for the long way around, you guys, on the way to the cross. He took the shortest route possible to the cross. And that involved going through Samaria. And we find out here that when the Samaritans found that he had set his face towards Jerusalem, that he was just passing through, boy, they didn't like it. They turned him away. And John and James came up with a solution. Why don't we just call down fire from heaven like they're Elijah the prophet or something like that and dealing with the prophets of Baal. And Jesus said to them, uh, or he rebuked them and he went on to another village. And I, I just want to say this to us in terms of don't hit back. See, if you're a Christian and everyone is singing your praises, then you're probably not a very good follower of Christ. If you're a Christian and everyone is singing your praises, you're probably not a very good follower of Christ. See, the word of God tells us who, whoever will have a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a spiritual law in a godless world. And Samaria was this. He said, guys, you don't need to hit back. You're gonna, we're going to suffer. We have set our sights on a cross. I'm teaching you to die, and I am going to die. And so we don't hit back. We just go about the business. And then the fourth, the fourth lesson of a disciple is this, is that priorities have to adjust. Meaning this, what I treat important matters. And so verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The point is this, as long as you follow me, do you recognize this world is not your home? you'll have no abiding place ultimately here. I mean, we know this as followers of Jesus. We're foreigners in a strange land. This world is not our home. And this world will not provide for us, you know, there, there's joy here, there's pleasure, there's the blessing of God, but the world does not provide for us an abiding place. We abide in Christ. And Jesus is teaching the disciples, look, you can be uprooted. You know you know that. Some of you have followed Jesus at different times in your life and he's uprooted you. He's taken you to different places to do different things. And it just makes me think, you know, be open-handed with the things of this world, not clinging. This man, Jesus had to tell him, do you know that if you follow me, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So see, if you're going to be a disciple, it's Jesus first and others second. 
And the idea here, actually, when you study this passage, is the man's father's not dead. He's not going to bury someone that's already dead. He's saying, let me go and be with my father until he dies, and then I will come, Jesus, and follow you. It's like this man had another loyalty, and Jesus is teaching that if you're going to follow me, your priorities have to change. I get the number one spot. I know, I think of the disciples, you know, they dropped everything to follow Jesus. Matthew, come follow me. Left his tax booth. You know, James, John, come follow me. They left their father and their nets. They left everything right then and there. This man couldn't do that. He had another loyalty. And then one more lesson on priority, verse 61. And he said to another, sorry, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. <laughs> I like this part of this text because it's like, Jesus said, there's no buts. There's no first. I'm first. I get priority number one. And this man says, but first let me go say goodbye. And Jesus is like, no, no. No buts. And nothing else comes first. I, I've never plowed a field. <laughs> you know, it's just not something that I've done, but, you know, I've spent plenty of time paddling a canoe or, you know, a kayak or driving a boat. And, and I know this, that when you're doing those things, if you don't set your eye or where you set your eye matters, you know, you, you got to pick something in front of you and you got to aim and you got to go for it. And Jesus said this, you're not fit to, I mean, nobody drives a boat by going backwards. And he said, you won't plow a field that way either. If you're plowing the field and you're not looking forward and you're looking behind you, when you do look back, you'll see this all over the place. And so these four lessons of the, of the disciples as they make their way to Jerusalem for the disciples and what it means to be a disciple. And it just makes me think this, you guys. There are always reasons not to follow Jesus, isn't there? There are always reasons not to follow. And disciples follow Jesus.